Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. In my last program, I went over the second and third articles of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In today's program, I plan to go over the fourth and fifth articles of the Creed, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And that Jesus Christ descended into hell and rose from the dead on the third day. All of this based on the Catechism of the Catholic Church in brief statements. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. Jesus has not abolished the law of Sinai. But he has accomplished it, St. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, with such a perfection, St. John chapter 8, verse 46, that he revealed it in its ultimate sense, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, and that he brought, brought back the transgressions against her, letter to the Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Here we see echoed the Sermon on the Mount. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. The Lord Jesus, one with the Father and the Spirit, is the same God who gave the law to Moses on Sinai's height. But it was not until his death and resurrection that we had the grace with which to keep the law. He has taken it to the next level. He is the new Moses. He truly liberates us, not only from slavery in Egypt to Pharaoh, but that terrible slavery of sin to Satan. Jesus venerated the temple in going up to the Jewish feasts on pilgrimage, and he loved with a jealous love this resting place of God among men. The temple prefigures his mystery. If he announces her destruction, it is as a manifestation of his proper mission to death and of entry into a new age of the history of salvation when his body will be the definitive temple. Jesus venerated the temple. The temple of Solomon the temple of Jerusalem, a type of his own body. This reminds us, too, that our bodies are temples of the Lord, especially when we have received holy baptism, and all the more when we receive his body and blood in the Eucharist. Tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, the Lord Jesus tells us, and that's what happened in his death and resurrection his body torn down in death, his body raised up on Easter. Jesus laid the axe such as a pardon of sins that he manifested being the God Savior himself. St. John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Certain Jews who not recognizing God made man, St. John chapter 1, verse 14, saw in him a man who made himself God, St. John chapter 10, verse 33. 
judged him as a blasphemer. Blasphemy is to take the name of God in vain, or to mock the things of God or God himself. The Lord Jesus never denied his own divinity. The Father and I are one. That you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say, pick up your mat, walk, and go. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Here, the Catechism of the Catholic Church just repeats what we read in sacred scripture. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 3. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Not only was his virgin birth prophesized, his death for our salvation prophesized, and his resurrection our life in him, since we are those living stones of his mystical body, the church, the definitive temple. Our salvation flows from the initiative of love of God toward us, because it is he who has loved us and who has sent his son as victim of propitiation for our sins. The first letter of St. John, chapter 4, verse 10. It is God who in Christ has reconciled the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. How good for us to have chosen our Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. But here we are reminded that God chose us first. That God who is loved initiated this great love affair with us. Sending his only begotten Son to save us from ourselves. God has reconciled us in Christ. Jesus is offered freely for our salvation. This gift he signifies and realized in advance during the Last Supper. This is my body which will be given up for you. St. Luke chapter 22 verse 19. Here we have the prefiguration of the sacrifice of Calvary, a sacrifice made present even until our Lord should return in glory at the end of time to judge the living and the dead in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the perpetuation of the sacrifice of the cross, his body and blood still offered up, his one only sacrifice mysteriously, sacramentally made present in the sacrament of the altar. Jesus is offered freely for our salvation. No one forced our Lord to create us. No one forced our Lord to redeem us. He does it out of love. In this consists the redemption of Christ. He has come to give his life in ransom for the multitude. St. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. That is to say, he loved his own unto the end. St. John chapter 13, verse 1, that they may be freed from the vain conduct inherited from their fathers. The first letter of St. Peter, chapter 1, verse 18. For the multitude, pro multis, is the Latin. We've had some trouble in the last so many years, a generation or so, translating that phrase. 
For indeed, Christ the Lord died for all, pro omnes, but not all except his grace. So that's why we read, he gave his life for the multitude, the multitude, the many, being those who accept his grace. May we be among them, counted in that number, and may that number increase even to the fullness when Christ will return in glory. What is this vain conduct we've inherited from our fathers? Nothing else but sin. Any sin is vain conduct. So often Mother Church is decried as being prudish, denouncing only sexual sins. And there are sexual sins, but there are eight other commandments, not just the sixth and the ninth. We're called to keep them all by God's grace to his glory and our salvation. There will be more on the commandments in a future series. By his loving obedience to the Father unto the death of the cross, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus accomplishes the expiatory mission, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, of the suffering servant who justified the multitudes, promultis again, in taking upon himself their faults, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Another name for those faults, our sins. Death on the cross, obedient unto death on a cross, a sign of his love not only for the eternal Father, but for us for whom he died. This is the mission the Lord received from the eternal Father to pay the price. We had a debt we could not pay, which he paid and he was able to pay because of his two natures. He paid in our human nature, united to his divine nature, and that was the exchange. Thanks be to God. He took upon himself our faults, our sins, in his shameful death on the cross. The Catechism of the Catholic Church cites St. John Damascene in his work, The Orthodox Faith. To benefit all men, Jesus has tasted death. It is truly the Son of God made man who died and was buried. Jesus died for all, to save us all. May we all accept his grace, his love, his mercy, his faith, his gospel, his church, that we need not taste the everlasting death, the everlasting eternal punishments of hell, but might be blessed in this life and forever in the next. He died to save us. Following the journey of Christ to the tomb, his divine person continued to carry his soul and his body separately, carrying them between death. This is why the dead body of Christ did not see corruption. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, verse 37. This is a mysterious aspect of the hypostatic union. For while his body and soul were separated in the death of the cross, the eternal person of the eternal word, the eternal son, was present to both the soul and the body, 
the body in the tomb, the soul going down to preach to those imprisoned in the hell of the fathers. When the Lord Jesus descended to hell, it was not because he was naughty or bad or wicked or sinful, but to shake a metaphorical finger at Satan, to tell him he had beaten him at his own game, to bring all those who had died with sorrow for their sins, who had implicit faith in him, made explicit by his descent to the joy of heaven. Jesus Christ ascended into hell and rose from the dead on the third day. In the expression, Jesus has descended, the creed confesses that Jesus really died, and that by his death for us he has vanquished death and the devil who has the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. The dead Christ in his soul, united to his divine person, has descended in journey to the dead. He has opened the doors of heaven to the just who awaited him proceeding. There's a famous icon, a depiction, a picture of the harrowing of hell, that is the descent of Christ. And if you recall the Wizard of Oz and that wicked witch being crushed by the house, in the famous image of the harrowing of hell, it is not the wicked witch, but the devil, I guess witches and the devils are friends, who's crushed, who's mushed by the gates of hell. And the Lord Jesus, standing on the gates of hell, knocked down, reaches out a hand to Adam and Eve and says, Come on, let's go to my father's house. I have prepared many mansions for you with David and Solomon, with John the Baptist and all the holy patriarchs and prophets who had awaited him, who had prepared the way for him. Faith in the resurrection has for an object an event at once historically attested to by the disciples who have really met the risen one and mysteriously transcends in that entry of the humanity of Christ into the glory of God. The historicity of the resurrection is attested to by the Gospels. Our faith is not in the empty tomb, but in the one who left the room. Our faith is in the one whose hands and side were extended to Thomas. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. We have seen the Lord. Were not our hearts on fire, burning within us? Is there any fish here? These various testimonies of the gospel remind us of the historicity of the resurrection. Our faith is not a fairy tale. Christ really was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He really was born of the Virgin Mary. He really suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, a historical figure attested to by extra-biblical sources. And so many of the brethren saw the risen Lord during his 40 days after the resurrection, even before his ascension. Those words, written in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were never contested. 
until centuries later, after all the witnesses had died. Funny, that. What's the Eighth Commandment? Not to bear false witness? The more things change, the more they stay the same. But the resurrection of the Lord is not only a historical happening, a historical reality, it's beyond history as well. For Christ has gone beyond our sight. He is at the Father's right hand now. And so we cannot pat him on the back like they could in that upper room or touch his hands inside. We have to wait until we are risen at the end of time and in his mercy brought to himself, or at least brought to his judgment seat. The empty tomb and the lying linens signify by themselves that the body of Christ has escaped the linens of death and corruption by the power of God. They prepare the disciples to meet the risen one, not only in the upper room, not only on the road to Emmaus, but all their days. We meet him even still in the sacrament of his body and blood. We meet him still when we gather in his name and cry out, Abba, Father. We look forward to that definitive meeting when we will breathe our last, when the trumpet will sound, when he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Christ is the firstborn of the dead. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the principle of our proper resurrection, each one of us specifically and all of us, of maintaining our soul by justification. St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 4. Later, by the vivification, the giving of life to our bodies. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Christ is called the firstborn of the dead because he died truly Good Friday. But firstborn, he came to life again, our Easter faith. Had he not risen, we would never rise, but he has risen and we will rise. This is how he is the principle of our specific, our proper resurrection. Christ maintains our soul by justification. He paid the price. He made us right with God, since he is God, by his death and resurrection, paying the price of our sins. Some might say, I'm just a human being. I'm just a little guy here in Tennessee. But if I sin, I sin against the almighty, all-powerful, all-good God. And that is exponential. So I had a debt. You have a debt, which we cannot pay. Christ has paid the price. He has made us right with God, with himself. And he maintains our souls. When we cooperate with his grace, with his call to holiness. And on the last day, he will reunite our souls and our bodies to bliss on high or to torment if we die in our sins. May we always be found pleasing in the sight of God. The sixth article of the Apostles' Creed 
is that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The ascension of Christ, 40 days after Easter, marks the definitive entry of the humanity of Jesus into the celestial domain of God from where he will come again. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking up? This Jesus will come back just as he has gone. This is why for centuries Mother Church has always prayed looking to the east. And it's only for the last generation or so that part of the church, the Latin rite, has been a little confused in making a closed circle around the altar rather than all facing together the east, awaiting the return in glory, even as we await the sacramental return in the consecration of the Eucharist. The Lord Jesus is hidden from our eyes in his ascension. That way we focus on his divinity. Had he stayed around, it would have not been such a challenge to faith. We would have seen him with his glorified wounds. He'd be 2,000 plus years old now these days. He is ascended to call on our faith. Jesus Christ, head of the church, preceded us into the glorious kingdom of the Father for us, members of his body, to live in hope, to be one day eternally with him. When we pray the Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary and meditate on the ascension of the Lord, the fruit of the mystery is hope, a longing for heaven, not just for sunny weather or a better economy. Hope is a supernatural, a theological virtue. We long to be in heaven. We long that our beloved dead have gone to heaven to be with the Lord and all his saints. It's not a political slogan. It's a theological reality, a reality of our faith. Jesus Christ has entered once for all into the sanctuary of heaven, interceding without ceasing for us as the mediator who assures us in permanent effusion of the Holy Spirit, showing his glorious wounds to the Eternal Father. It was not just on Good Friday that he interceded for us. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Even on high, he shows his glorified wounds to the Father. Father, have mercy on them. They know not what they do. Father, bless them, for I suffered and died for them. Father, bless them. Send them the Spirit I promised we would send them. And the Spirit has been sent. So when we hear the Word of God proclaimed and explained in church, we believe. Faith comes from hearing. What is heard is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word made flesh, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, in the fullness of time to save us from ourselves, from our sins, to teach us how to live, to win for us the grace we need to keep his commandments, to believe all that he has revealed, that faith entrusted once for all of the saints, faith not only that God exists, but all that he has revealed, 
faith in the mystery of the Trinity. Go ye therefore baptize all nations, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded thee. Lo, I am with you all days, even until the end of the age. Faith in the Incarnation, that God became like us in all things but sin to save us from our sins, that he was conceived of the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. We know our civil leaders in our own day, Pilate a leader then, death on a cross, an ignoble death, capital punishment of the day, excruciating pain, torture, really, undertaken for love of us. Accursed is the man who hangs on the tree, and he hung on the tree out of love for us, taking our curses, our sins, our wickedness upon himself. So disfigured was he. I am a wormy man. But he rose from the earth on the third day. He showed himself to Simon and to John, to Peter, to James, Bartholomew, Simon and Jude. All of the apostles saw him, save Judas who betrayed him. Some are content to say, oh, it was only Judas who betrayed the Lord, but we betray him when we sin. We console him when we repent, so that his agony in the garden might not be so terrible. For while that happened then, years ago, God lives in eternity. He entered into time to save us, that we might have a blessed eternity ourselves. Christ dies no more. He died once for all. May we all accept his grace and mercy. May we all accept his plan in our lives that we will live with him and for him, suffer with him and for him, trusting all the while that he is with us. He has not left us orphans. He calls us to help each other, even as Simon of Cyrene helped him to carry his cross made heavy not just by the timbers, but by the weight of our sins. Let us pray for our beloved dead, as our Lord prayed for those and even visited them during his three days in the tomb. For while his body was enshrouded and entombed, his soul went to see them, to save them who had repented, May our hope be stirred. May we long for heaven to be with the Lord Jesus and all his holy ones, joining in that great chorus, Holy, holy, holy Lord, the song of the angels and of the saints. This is our saving faith. This is our salvation, our redemption. This is the fulfillment of the scriptures. May we be zealous not only in proclaiming it, but living it. For the more we conform our lives to Christ, crucified and glorified, the greater we will proclaim his kingdom, even as we await his return in glory. Let us remember in a special way our beloved dead, and know that it is a work of mercy to bury 
the dead. It is a work of mercy to pray for the dead. It is likewise a work of mercy to instruct the ignorant and to counsel the doubtful. May these programs be a source of consolation to you as we grow in faith by God's grace. Until next time, God bless you.